So we are starting to move. You'll, you probably were uh, not rattled, maybe, but you probably noticed a change in the tone of our scripture readings this Sunday. So we're, we're, we're starting to see this slow pivot of the church calendar. And this is one of my favorite moments in the church calendar. You know, last week we had all saints. We celebrate uh, the kingdom of the saints or the, the kingdom of God and all the saints who have gone before us and, and now uh, uh, praise the Lord eternally in heaven. And these are bizarre days uh, of the church calendar that we're now in. Uh, this is the cusp of Advent. Uh, these Sundays in November are sometimes referred to as pre-Advent Sundays. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright calls these Kingdom Sundays, with last week all being All Saints, uh, this Sunday with the scripture readings that we have, and the next Sunday being Christ the King, prepares us. This, this is technically the conclusion of the calendar, and then a new calendar starts on the first Sunday of Advent. And this is a time in which the church looks back to the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. But also we look forward to the coming again of Christ in glory when he shall save his people, judge the wicked, and restore all things. In other words, Kingdom Sundays, Advent, these are apocalyptic times, apocalyptic readings. We hear about global disasters the fall of nations, earthquakes and storms. We hear about the day of the Lord. We hear about judgment of God and the folding up of time as we know it. Now, some traditions would call this Christmas time. We call it Advent. (laughs) Here, we take an honest assessment of the darkness of our world. And like the disciples from today's gospel reading, we ask Jesus the question, when will these things be? And we pray earnestly for the return of the king in glory. And that leads us to perhaps uh, one of the most apocalyptic stories or scriptures that we read. uh, This reading from Malachi. Now, this is a pretty heavy passage. Uh, It was silent as Larry was reading that passage. And the temptation is for us to plug our ears uh, and move along to something a little bit more palatable. Uh, But one of the church fathers, St. Augustine, says, If you believe what you like in the Gospels, and you reject what you don't like in the Gospels, well then it's not the Gospel that you believe, but it's yourself. And so while there are uncomfortable portions in this passage, there are also tremendous moments of grace and justice and healing and promises in this passage. There is a day in which all evil will be vanquished from this world forever. And so I hope that as we look in this passage, I I hope that you see the one true God, that he is the God of light, but he is also the God of love, and he is coming to restore all things. So I want us to move through this in, in, in three movements. So Malachi, this is the last book in the Old Testament, and this is at a time in which the Jews have returned back from their exile. If you remember, they were in exile for a long time. Uh, they're back. Um, most of them are back. Some of them are still scattered. But uh, things are not as they thought they would be. The scriptures prophesied that as they were returning, that the land itself would sort of burst out in, in flower and, and, and full bloom. Uh, that, that, just, that peace would come as, as they came back. But as they looked around, they saw the temple was 
no longer in the glory of, of how they remembered it. And they're still oppressed by their neighbors. And what this does is this stirs up resentment in their hearts. And they direct that resentment towards God. In verse 13, the Lord says, Your words have been hard against me. Now, God is not whining here. It's not like God's saying, Oh, this is just so hard. That's not the posture of the Lord. The word hard that's used here is the same word to describe the hardness of Pharaoh's heart um, in the Old Testament. This word can be translated as, as harsh or severe. This is a stubborn and willful ignorance of God's people. And then the people respond and they're like, what are you talking about, God? What do you mean? How have we spoken harshly against you? And God tells them, he says in verse 14, you are saying to me, what is the profit of us keeping the Lord or keeping the law? What is the profit? What does it profit us to obey all of these commandments? Do you hear how self-centered that line is, that reasoning is? Here the people are saying, look, we are, we are serving you, we're paying our tithes, we're, we're keeping all the, the purity laws and, and the holiness that's, that's been declared, or that, that we've been instructed to do. We attend worship in the temple on a regular basis. What have we got to show for all of our obedience? What do we have to profit for this, the people say. Now, if you've been a Christian for a, a season, my guess is that you've asked that question yourself. What have I gotten out of this? That's not probably a question that's very popular to put out there. You're probably not eager to say that. But my, my, my guess is that in those difficult moments of your life, in the darkness of night, this is a question that you've prayed before the Lord. Is this even worth it? Now, I don't know what it is about our, our church restoration, um, but, but many of you actually have experience in Christian ministry. Some of you um, have been pastors, some of you have been missionaries, some of you have worked with Christian organizations before of, of various sorts. Um, but even if, if you haven't like been employed by a, a Christian organization, my hope is that all of us in the room uh, have made major decisions in our lives as a result of our faith. And because of that, there's probably been moments when you've even asked the question, is it worth it? I've served for years, and what do I have to show for it? Have my sacrifices been worthwhile? What reward have I gotten for my years of service to God and his people? How do I profit from this? So I say this as a friend. I say this in love. But why should obeying God's call bring worldly profit to it? Why should obeying God's call bring worldly profit? Did you discern his call through studying the scriptures in prayer, in consultation with wise mentors? Have you been faithful to that call? Do you serve God to the best of your ability? Why should obeying God's call bring worldly profit? So in this first movement in this passage, we see that there's a hardness of heart in, among the people. And this is a hardness of heart that we ourselves sometimes experience as well. So in verse 16, uh, going to this second movement, in verse 16 we read, Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention to them. And the Lord hear, hears them. You see, however dark the times might seem, 
There's always a remnant. God in his grace, in his mercy, he always maintains a remnant of people. This happens over and over throughout the Old Testament. There's always a group who responds positively to God's call. And then God says, they will be mine. He says, they will be my treasured possession. So two quick things about this. First, encourage one another. The people met together and they encouraged one another. We, therefore, have to do likewise. This reminds me of Hebrews chapter 3. Exhort one another every day, says the author, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, God puts us intentionally in community with one another so that we might encourage one another. That's one of the reasons why we even gather here on Sundays and why... It's good and fun to hang out before and after. Um, We've moved the coffee downstairs, by the way, in the fellowship hall so that we can have more space for fellowship. Don't be discouraged by the fact that it's downstairs. (laughs) But this this is a place in which we're meant to encourage one another. When times feel difficult, when you feel doubt, when you feel despair, or you feel like those worldly distractions are, are, are tugging you away, surround yourself with God's people. But secondly, we see that God eternalizes their names. He eternalizes their names. A book is created. And and, and this is a line that describes what's, what's happening in the heavenlies. A book is actually being written down before God with the names of his beloved people. He does not forget them. He doesn't forget you. Your name is recorded forever. This reminds me of Revelation 21, where we're told that the name of every believer is written in the, in the Lamb's book of life. When we die, humanity will forget our names. Can you remember the name of your great-grandfather or maybe your great-great-grandfather? Our names will pass away, but God will not forget. Your name is recorded. It is eternally known to him. He sees his children. He knows his children. He loves his children. And he remembers his children. This, in this second movement, we see that God's, we see God's saving and eternal love for his people. And the fruit of that, which is the fellowship that we have with one another. So thirdly, in this chapter 4, the prophet says, he describes to us this great day of the Lord that's coming. And this is difficult to read. This is hard. What will this day be like? It says clearly it'll burn like an oven in which the arrogant and the evildoers will be burnt up. Those who earlier in this passage were envied are now judged by God. And this brings up two very difficult issues that we have to wrestle with. In verse 3 it says that the righteous will tread on the wicked. Wow. Like what in the world does that mean? You know, quite frankly, it is a disturbing image. And I don't want to pretend to know exactly what that looks like. But I think the scriptures can at least lay a minimal, or I think we we can at least take hold of a minimal fact in this. Paul tells us in the New Testament, Bless those who persecute you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So whatever it is that we have to make of of what this final judgment looks like and, and how we might participate in that, it is not justification here and now to seek revenge upon others. 
That's not our job. That's not our concern. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. Paul tells us to leave room for the wrath of God. But a second difficult issue in here is how can a God of love condemn people to hell? And this is a question that every Christian wrestles with. In fact, if you haven't wrestled with that question, you will. Um, And I think all who take scripture seriously wrestle with this question. But the Bible gives to us, hands to us, two truths. That God is light. And that is a purifying light. But God is also love. God is judge. But God is also savior. And that's where we find the answer to this. God does not condemn without offering restitution. A free gift. So the Bible teaches that human beings are created in the image of God. That we are made to rule, to explore, and to bring order to this creation. Can you imagine what it would have been like if humanity had not fallen? This carries an incredible dignity to it and a huge responsibility that is way beyond what our imaginations are even capable of comprehending. C.S. Lewis speculates that if we're able to see one another in, in, the, in, that, in, that, um, in our intended glory, that we would be tempted to fall down and worship one another. That we would appear as godlike to one another because we, are, we hold that image of God. But what that means is that in our rebellion, our rebellion has, against God has eternal consequences to it. And the fact is that we all deserve the fires of hell. But it is only the saving death of the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, that can rescue us. And this brings us to one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire Old Testament. In verse 2 of chapter 4, the prophet writes this, quoting the Lord. For those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You know, here in Minnesota, we've just experienced a, a very beautiful autumn. Uh, don't think of the past few days. Just get that out of your mind. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, but I've loved the sunsets that we've had. And as the sun is setting, you see those scattered clouds. And how the, it, what that does is it, it, the rays of the sun just stretch from horizon to horizon. The ancients called those rays the wings of the sun. This is actually an image that was used quite a bit in ancient times among pagan cultures. And so here we see the prophet appropriating that and saying, your God is not the son of righteousness. Yahweh is. He is the son of righteousness. He is the Holy One. And when he rises, there is healing in his wings. Jesus says in the gospel, how often would I have gathered my children as a hen gathers her young under her wings? You see, Jesus is the son of righteousness. How is this? Well, the prophet Isaiah says, Upon him was the punishment that, was made, that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. So this isn't just beautiful, poetic, metaphorical uh, language. These are spiritual truths that we can take hold of. And the apostle Peter says the same thing. He says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds you have been healed. He is the son of righteousness. Now, it is difficult thinking about these things. Things like hell and judgment and justice. But look at the world that we live in. 
Does our world not demand that we come face to face with these things? Our world is marred with evil and tragedy and death. Plague, pestilence, wars and rumors of wars. That is the world that we live in. So if our faith, if our religion, if our holy book doesn't seriously contend with the reality of evil, then what are we doing here? Like, praise the Lord that we have this book. That it takes seriously the things that are going on in our world and it says, yes, that is real. We don't just put Christmas lights out and, you know, blind ourselves to the extended darkness of our world. We actually contend with this. The truth of the Bible is that God contends with these things. That He is the God of love. That He descended into our rebellion. And He takes upon Himself the chaos of this world. That by His death and resurrection, He has paved the way to everlasting life. So in a few moments, we're going to be celebrating uh, Holy Communion with one another. This is something in our church that we do every single week. And as you hear that Eucharistic liturgy, don't tune it out. Those are the words of the gospel. Those are the stories of God's redemption that are spoken over to us week after week after week. And as you hear that, listen to the story of God's love proclaimed over you. And then as you come forward and receive the bread and the wine, take that as a physical promise that God is going to make all things new. That as you open your hands and receive the bread and the, and the wine or, or the juice and you, you receive his presence, may your soul be stirred, uh, stirred up into greater love and affection of him. May your heart be warmed by the son of righteousness. That there will be a day in which all evil is contended with and put away forever. And we will worship our Lord face to face. So please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the God of glory. You are the son of righteousness. So Lord, nourish us and warm us by the rays of your presence. Stir up the hearts of your faithful people that we may trust in you and you alone, not for our own sake, but the sake of your kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.